Let me just uh, welcome Somerset, uh, second weekend in the new building. Last weekend, they had over 580 people in attendance, so that was a really big deal. A great way to uh, open the doors of that building. And then also it's a big day uh, at our Williamsburg campus because uh, they are hosting 200 plus guests today from, our, uh, from the University of the Cumberland's uh, Patriot football family. So we are really glad to have you and let's welcome them. Let them know how glad we are that they're deciding to spend some time with us. Now, uh, whenever you talk about church, uh, church is not an emotionally neutral subject. It's just not. And it takes us to different emotional places because we've all had different experiences with the church. Uh, some of us grew up in church. Uh, some of us didn't. Uh, some of us grew up in families that made church a priority and some of us grew up in families that didn't make church a priority. Some of us, we have been consistently attending church since childhood, but some of us really didn't get consistent and connected or tied to the church until later on in life. Uh, some of us believe that the local church is the hope of the world because of what we've experienced and the life change and the hope that we found and the love that we've encountered. But some of us were not quite sure that the local church is the hope of the world. And maybe that's you. And maybe you're not quite sure that the local church is the hope of the world because of how once upon a time the church that you were attending or the church that you encountered, how the church treated you how the church treated your mom or your dad or how the church treated your brother or your sister. Uh, you'll never forget that. And, and because of that, you're just not quite sure about church. You're not quite sure if you agree that the local church is the hope of the world. And, and maybe that's how you feel. Maybe because of the hate that you've seen out of Christians the hate that you've heard from Christians, that you've encountered from Christians online, or maybe you've encountered through sermons or hearing Christians dialogue or have conversations. Uh, maybe you're not quite sure that the church is the hope of the world because you've only found church to be hyper-political or hyper-partisan or homophobic or anti-science or generally unkind. That was kind of your perception of the local church. So you're, you're not quite sure. And so once upon a time, you decided that you were just gonna walk away from the church and in walking away from the church, it took a little bit of time, but you found yourself almost walking away from faith. But yet here you are today, or you're watching today, and you're even surprised that you're here or watching today. And you're here with your defenses up. Maybe somebody invited you. Maybe, maybe you're here just as one last ditch effort to give church and to give faith and to give Jesus a chance. And I just wanna say, I'm glad you're here. I want you to know we built this place for you. You're in a building today that we built it just for you. And I hope that you'll lean in. I hope that you'll listen because I believe that if you'll catch the vision of what Jesus had for the local church. See, I think the reason maybe you don't believe that the church is the hope of the world is because what you experienced of the church was something that seemed in opposition to what you knew to be true about Jesus. And that's what we're talking about in this series. The big idea that we talked about last week, and we just kept coming back to it time and time again. It was this idea that what was true of Jesus should also be true of his church. That's his followers. That's people who call themselves Christians. What, what was true of Jesus should be true of us. Uh, to say it another way, because this is a really important idea, what was true of Jesus personally while he was on the earth, what was true of Jesus personally should be true of us collectively. 
So when we read through the gospels and, and we read about Jesus, how he interacted with people, how he spoke about people, his perspective concerning people. Every time we see that on the pages of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we are learning something about how the church is supposed to be. We are learning something about how we are supposed to be. We're learning about our perspective. We're learning about our attitude. We're learning about how to have interactions and conversations. We're learning from Jesus about how we, the church, are supposed to be. And so as you read through the gospels, and I hope you do, every time you learn something about how Jesus dealt with people and how Jesus thought about people and how Jesus felt about people, you're learning something about how the church is supposed to be. You're learning something about how you're supposed to be and I'm supposed to be. So we talked about a lot of different ideas and I just wanna give them to you because it flows right into what we're talking about today. This is what we learn about Jesus in the gospels. We learned that Jesus didn't reject the messy and broken, and neither should we. Messy and broken people didn't bother Jesus. Now, let me tell you who bothers, who's bothered by messy and broken people. Messy and broken people bother people who love their religion, who love their traditions, who love their politics, who love their views more than people. That's who gets bothered, irritated, frustrated, angry with messy and broken people. It's the people who love their religion more than they love people. They love their politics more than they love people. They love their opinion more than they love people. They love their freedom more than they love Jesus, more than they love people. They just love everything else about their life that has to do with them directly than they do the people around them. That's who gets bothered by messy and broken people. When you read through the gospels, if you could hear the soundtrack if you could hear the soundtrack of people's lives that came to Jesus, it would be that. It was the soundtrack of brokenness. It was the soundtrack of a mess. It was a bunch of broken, messy pieces that would come up to Jesus, encounter Jesus, have conversations with Jesus. And Jesus never rejected the messy and the broken. He was never scared away by the messy and the broken. He doesn't reject the broken, he redeems the broken. Only Jesus can redeem the broken. Only he can bring beauty out of ashes and only he can take the broken pieces of your life and my life and other people's lives and turn it into a beautiful mosaic. He, he can bring good out of what sounds and looks bad. And what was true of Jesus should be true of us. This is our calling. This is who we are to be. This is what we do. We don't reject, turn our back, close our doors to the messy and broken. If the church wants to make a difference, if the church really wants to be salt and light, if the church really wants to push back darkness in our world, it starts with getting off our high horses. It begins with us not looking down our self-righteous noses and stop rejecting what's messy and broken because we learn it first from Jesus. We learn that Jesus was a friend of sinners and the church should be too. He was a friend to doubters and skeptics and those far from God, those with no faith and those with little faith, those who had questions, those who had struggles and issues and baggage, those who didn't measure up, those who weren't good at keeping the rules, those who were not religious, those who had failed themselves and failed others and hurt themselves and hurt others. Jesus decided, hey, you know what? I'm gonna be your friend. I'm gonna be in your corner, I've got your back. And the messy and the broken never felt the pressure to pretend to be something they weren't in order to be loved by Jesus. He decided to be their friend. Because once upon a time when that was your story, and by the way, 
it's still your story. But when you were messy and broken and we were messy and broken, do you know who Jesus decided to befriend? It was you, it was me, it was us. So how dare we not friend one of Jesus's friends? And when you decide not to be a friend to Jesus's friend, I'm not even sure if you're a friend to Jesus at all. So I'm gonna move along because I could camp out there for a few minutes and I don't think it's the right time. So what else did we learn about Jesus? Jesus prioritized seeking and saving the lost above all things, and so should the church. It was his purpose, it was his passion. He was preoccupied with people who had wandered away and lost their way and couldn't find their way back. Churches begin to die when they care more about the butts that are in the seat than the chairs that are empty. Churches begin to die once they begin to spend all their time trying to tickle the ears of the believers, please the believers, satisfy the believers, structure everything that makes it better for the believers and forget that they're in this world to call unbelievers to belief in Jesus. We get into trouble when we forget why we are here. We also find out about Jesus that Jesus cared more about sinners, oh this is good, than he did their sin. And so should the church. Let me ask this question because you've probably not thought about it recently. How many of us are glad that Jesus cared more about us than he did our sin? Because if Jesus had cared more about your sin than you, your story would be different. My story would be different and the gospel would not be good news. Imagine if the church could get this right. Imagine if all churches could get this right, that people, all people are more important than what they've done. That people are more important than what they think. That people are more important than how they vote. That people are more important than what they believe. You say, why would we do that? Because that's what Jesus did. And what was true of Jesus should be true of us. We find that Jesus moved in the direction of those whose lives were messy and so should the church. He just didn't refuse to reject them, but he moved in the direction. He, he sought them out. He, he didn't sit back and say, come to me. No, he built bridges rather than barriers. He nurtured relationships. He had conversations. He went to parties. He had dinners. He did what was necessary in order to draw near. And then beyond that, Jesus met people in the middle of their mess. Not only did he move towards the mess, but Jesus met people in the middle of their mess and so should the church. We can't be worried about guilt by association or what will they say about us? What will other Christians say about us? I told you, if the church gets this right, there'll be other Christians who say, you're doing it wrong. He didn't fear guilt by association. He didn't care about his reputation. He didn't care about what the religious establishment had to say. People meant more to him than what people said about him. And so when you put it all together, this is what we get. The church should be the perfect place for imperfect people. Let's all just say that out loud together, all right? On three, one, two, three. The church should be the perfect place for imperfect people. Imperfect people like you, imperfect people like me. Now, if you're a guest of ours and you're looking for the perfect church, (laughs) keep moving. (laughs) Keep shopping. But I've got news for you. There are no such thing as perfect churches because I'm in it. And the people that you're around, they're in it. And we're imperfect people in an imperfect world. 
but the church is a perfect place for imperfect people. Now, this is why this is, this is a big deal to me. And this is very, I'm very passionate about this and emotional about this because there are thousands of people, believe it or not, some of you, you've been out of that circle for so long, it's hard for you to believe it and imagine it or connect with it. But there are thousands of people in our communities where our churches are, thousands of people who believe that they're not good enough to come to the local church. They believe, they believe that they're too messed up, they're too broken to come to the local church. They believe that they don't have nice enough clothes to come to the local church. They've made too many wrong decisions to go to the local church. They don't have enough money, their car's not nice enough, their kids have got issues, so there's no place for them at the church and they're afraid. They're afraid of the local church, they're afraid if they show up they'll be judged. They're afraid if they show up, they may be called out and embarrassed because they have been before. But let's be the church where no one feels that way about this place. Let's be a church where people know that they can come and not only do they know they're welcome, but they know we want them. That we're not intimidated by mess or brokenness. That this is a place, we're gonna speak uncompromised truth, but we're gonna give you unrestrained grace all at the same time. And it's not easy to do it that way, but it's the best way to do it. It's the way that Jesus did it. For me, I've never regretted giving someone grace. Never. And I'll tell you something else, I've never regretted receiving grace. It's a win-win proposition. But I know, some of you have been in the church long enough, you're religious enough, I get it. I, the question is, what's, 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 what then? What happens after that? What happens after Jesus moves towards the mess, moves in the mess? Well, Jesus moves towards our mess, he meets us in our mess, and he invites us to follow him and move beyond our mess. Because Jesus doesn't wanna leave us where he found us. He doesn't want to leave you or me or us how he found us. So he moves towards us. He gets involved in the mess and then he extends to everybody the same invitation. And the invitation that Jesus gives isn't stop it, it isn't be good. The invitation that Jesus gives everybody is this right here, follow, follow me Jesus says. I want you to believe that I am who I say that I am. I want you to believe that I died for your sins, I was buried, I was raised from the dead. And I want you to believe that so much that you are willing to organize every compartment of your life around me, around my teaching, around my example, around my ethics, around my values. I want you to believe that I am who I am so much that you are willing to reorganize and realign your life because I'm inviting you to follow. I'm inviting you to change, to pivot, to realign. I'm inviting you to something better. I'm inviting you to what's best. I'm inviting you to move beyond. Everybody say move beyond. I'm inviting you to move beyond your mess, to no longer be defined by it, controlled by it, mastered by it. I'm inviting you to follow me out of the mess that you got yourself into. I'm inviting you to follow me to move beyond all of that. You see, a lot of us, we grew up in church. I did, I, I grew up in church and you know that, many of you, and, and some of you, that's your story. But I think a lot of us Christians, we grew up in the church and, and it was made to sound as though that following Jesus was one single event. It was one single event in your life. You prayed a prayer, you prayed that prayer, Bam, you're in, good. 
nothing else to worry about. It was walking down an aisle. It was signing a card. It was joining a church. And, and on the other end of that was just immediate change, immediate better, that everything was gonna change. You were gonna pray a prayer and at the end of amen, it was just all good. You're gonna walk down the aisle and at the front of the aisle, it was all good. You heard stories, people say, I knelt down this and I got up that, and that's good. Maybe that's your story, but you're not the rule. You tend to be the exception, and I'm glad that's your story, but for many of us, we knelt down and got up and not much had changed. Everything that was kind of there before we got back up and signed the card, they introduced us and we walked back and we're thinking, I kind of feel like I did before. Feel a little better, but I still got that stuff. I still that struggle. I, and then all of a sudden we began to doubt it. And we began, did that mean anything? Did it matter? Is I feel like nothing changed and everything was supposed to change. But in the Christian life, what we find is, what the scriptures teach us is that change is not an event, change is a process. It's, it's not really a sudden change, it's an incremental change. It's a beneficial change, but it is not a convenient change. It's profitable, but yet it's costly. It's best for us, but it's not necessarily what's easy for us. And a lot of us, we thought, we, we thought if I walk down that aisle, if I pray that prayer, if I kneel down, that moment, that moment in time, everything was going to change. And when it didn't, you were a bit disillusioned. You felt good that night and then you woke up the next day and you went to work and guess what? The people that irked your nerves on Friday still irked your nerves on Monday. All that stuff that you wanted to get beyond on Sunday when you went forward, you woke up on Monday morning and bless God, it happened to wake up with you. And it was like, what is up with this? I thought everything was supposed to be immediately different. The New Testament says that if anybody be in Christ, they're a brand new creation. That's true. But it also says that old things begin to pass away and all things are beginning to become new. It is a process. And so if you're discouraged because once upon a time you prayed, but it doesn't feel like anything really shifted or changed. If you still carry around those struggles and those desires and you still feel like you're getting defeated and falling down on your face from time to time and some of the sins that you swore you never do again, you just keep on coming back to. And the things that you wanted victory over, you still get defeated by from time to time. And, and you're wondering, what's the problem? Is it me, is it Jesus, is it faith? Is, is this real, is this legitimate, or what's the problem? Maybe you've just had the wrong expectations. Maybe you've not understood the journey of faith. Coming to faith in Christ, it is a step but it is only the first step. Amen. It is an important step, the most important step, but it is the first step. Here's, let me say it this way. Jesus changing our life may just take the rest of our life. Amen. Whew, I want him to be done, me too, but he's not. Jesus changing our life, and you know what? That's true of you. And it's true of the person to the right of you and to the left of you, behind you, in front of you. It's true of all of those who call themselves followers of Jesus. 
It certainly took a lifetime for a lot of the early disciples, the original disciples. It certainly took a lifetime for the, for the captain of the squad, Simon Peter. Many of us, we remember this story from childhood or we've heard sermons about it. And, and, and it was really unfortunately presented to us because it was not the entire story. And we would hear the story of how Simon Peter and his brother Andrew and James and John, how they would come to faith. And it just seemed so unreasonable. It seemed so dramatic. Remember how Matthew put it, and this was the one that usually the preachers go to and teachers talk about. Matthew records it this way, that one day Simon Peter and Andrew and James and John, they were down by the Sea of Galilee and they'd been fishing because they were, wait for it, fishermen, all right? See, the scripture leaves nothing to chance, all right? It gives us all the information we need. It says that Jesus walked up to them while they were there on the shore and Jesus said, come, Follow me, there it is, the invitation, follow me. Jesus said, I will send you out for, to fish for people. And then here was the part that just seemed, wow, it's incredible, what faith. That's so amazing. And at once, all of a sudden, they left their nets and they followed him. They just left it all behind. It was like one day they're out there and this strange guy comes up and says, hey, I need you to leave your jobs and follow me. And it's like, sure. And everybody who's responsible or reasonable, we read that and we're like, that's not real life. What would it take for a stranger to show up at your office this week and say, hey, would you follow me? Leave everything and follow me. <laughs> sure, pal. They didn't even ask for identification. It was just like, oh yeah, let's do it. And the idea was, if you truly believe in Jesus, if you truly follow Jesus, it's just sudden, it's awesome, it's amazing. You're willing to leave everyone, everything. Everything changes in that moment. And if not, you've not done something right. So Jesus then leaves Andrew and Simon Peter and goes to James and John and says, hey, follow me. And Matthew says, and immediately, immediately, without any questions, they left the boat and their father and followed him. Dad, you see the guy in the robe with the sandals with the great hair, we're going with him. Tell mom bye, take care of the business. We'll see you when we see you. It's like, who does that? No one. This isn't an all of a sudden jump off the cliff into the dark type of faith without reason or without questions being answered. It's not that type of thing at all. But a lot of us, we think that's what kind of faith we need. This is not an emotionally driven decision. This is not because Jesus walked up with a little bitty boom box and started playing just as I am in the background and walks up to him and says, would you follow me? Come on, follow me, just now, follow me. No, there wasn't any emotion to it. It was just like, oh, he walked up, said, follow me, and they were in. You say, well, what happened? Well, I'll tell you what the Bible says. It says immediately their lives were clean and neat and tidy. The four or five who know the story are like, that's who you're hearing right now. The summer like, does it really say that? It says that? No, no, it doesn't say that. But Luke comes along and Luke, he's a doctor. He's a detailed type. He's, he's a Paul Harvey rest of the story kind of guy. And he says, I need to tell you the rest of the story. Matthew, he kind of gave the highlights. It is what happened, but it's not all that happened. So Luke says this way, this is what happened. Same event, different perspective, different set of facts and details. He says, one day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, uh, the Sea of Galilee, the people were crowding around to him and they were listening. 
They were listening to the word of God. Now, Jesus didn't have a 1611 King James Version. I know that's disappointing for many of you, but 1611 is a year. That's 1600 or so years after Jesus. So he, he didn't have a Bible and he wasn't carrying an Old Testament scroll. When it says they were listening to the word of God, Luke says they were listening to Jesus because Jesus was the word of God. Jesus was the word incarnate. That's who Jesus was. He was the embodiment of truth. And so they're listening to Jesus because people then like people now, they have questions. We all have questions. We're born with questions. We, we develop into beings that have questions about ourselves and about the world and about our place in it about where did I come from, who am I, why am I here, how should I live my life, and where am I headed, where's all this going? People in every generation have those big existential questions. It's just, it's part of it. No matter how much people don't seem concerned about that, when people lay their head on the pillows at night, people sometimes think about where did I come from? Am I an accident or am I on purpose? Why am I here? Does my life mean anything? Is there value to it? And if there's purpose to my life, then how should I live my life? And if it matters how I live my life, then where does all of this end up? And so they had questions, like we have questions. So what do they do? They draw near to listen to Jesus to see if he has answers to their questions. Now, Jesus, he, he, was, he was a provocative person because he was challenging people's ideas about God. Let me just say this. If you're looking for a church where the sermon never rubs you wrong, where, where the sermon never causes you to call another person to say, is this true? If you're looking for a church where everything you hear is just affirmation of what you already wanna believe, then you might be in the wrong church. Jesus was somebody who wanted to provoke and challenge ideas and things that people had just accepted mindlessly, interpretations, ideas. He challenged their ideas about God. He challenged their ideas about who they were and who other people were. He challenged their ideas about who was in and who was out when it came to the kingdom of God. So people drew near, they wanted to hear. They, they kind of liked feeling a little bit uncomfortable and they thought, well, maybe he has answers to our questions. Now, this, this is also a big deal, so don't miss this. They're listening, and that's where faith begins. Faith begins with hearing. Faith begins with listening. Faith begins with facts. Faith begins with facts. Faith begins with information. It begins with truth. That's where faith begins. That's how faith develops. That's how faith is born. It's born out of the information that's true and factual, so they're listening. So if faith feels foreign to you, if faith feels far from you, if you're open, if you really wanna know what's true, in any area of your life, it begins with listening and listening to more than just the people you agree with already. But that's our culture. We just wanna listen to the people that we already agree with or who already agree with us because it makes us feel good about our presuppositional beliefs. And the moment that we listen to somebody who doesn't agree with them, oh, it's easy for us, they're liberal, they're wrong, they're the problem, they're enemy. So it begins with listening. Everybody just needs to be, a, if our culture needs anything right now, we need better listeners. Okay. And it should begin with cross followers because that's where faith always begins. So they were willing to investigate, they were willing to ask questions and. 
They draw near. And so the crowd gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And Jesus is kind of running out of real estate. And he's back and his heels are on the water. And he doesn't want to get his Birkenstocks wet. And so he thinks to himself, I, 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 I got to do something. And it says, so he saw. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by fishermen. Same story that Matthew was telling us. Who are these fishermen? Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, and John who were washing their nets. Why were they washing their nets? They had been fishing all night. They're at the end of their shift. So they're cleaning. They haven't caught anything. We'll find that out in a minute. But they're cleaning their nets. There's some trash and debris in there. And so he was getting everything cleaned up, put away because he was gonna be fishing again that night. So they're cleaning their nets. They're done. They're tired. It says that Jesus got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon Peter. And he asked him, he asked Simon Peter, who's been washing his net. He's fished all night. He's worked a long shift. And then he asks him, hey, let's push this boat back out. And Jesus wanted to do a few things. Jesus wanted to use the water as acoustics. And, but Jesus, more than that, is orchestrating this entire series of events to bring Simon Peter to this moment. Now, here's a thought for you. What if Jesus has been orchestrating the events of your life to bring you to this moment? Peter didn't wake up that day thinking anything was gonna be different, life-shattering, life-changing. What if God really is involved in the details of our lives? What if God really is in control and he's working all things out for good? What if he is moving all things forward according to the will of his own counsel? What, what if today you're here? I know you're here a lot of Sundays. Maybe you're here for the first Sunday. But what if you're here and you're sitting where you are because God orchestrated a series of events to put you where you are? I don't know, that excites me. It excites me to know that I may be unknowingly right in the middle of something big that God wants to do in my life, in somebody else's life, for somebody else. And so Peter, he's there, he's worked all night, he's tired, he's frustrated. He feels like a lot of you when you get off of work and you go home. They're no different then than we are now. He's a bit frustrated, he didn't catch any fish, it's his business, it's his livelihood. And then Jesus shows up and he asks him a question. And this question seems small, but it feels extremely inconvenient. See, some of our churches do us a disservice by not telling us that following Jesus is extremely inconvenient. And I get it, we gotta do the sales pitch. It's a better life, it's the best life. It's your best life now, bro. It's your best life now, it's your best life then, come on. Believe and receive. It's all goody after this. Because we're afraid if we tell folks, if you'll follow Jesus, it's gonna be one of the most inconveniencing things of your life, that nobody will respond. But following Jesus is incredibly inconvenient at times. Peter is being asked a question, which is inconvenient. He's washing his nets, he's tired, he's finished. But it's inconvenient, a lot of the things that Jesus asks us to do. That's why we don't like a lot of the things that he asks us to do. That's the reason we don't do a lot of the things that he asks us to do. It's inconvenient to forgive the person that wronged you. It's inconvenient. It's inconvenient to bless your enemy. It's inconvenient to do for others as you would want them to do for you. It's inconvenient to put another person's concern or another person's need or another person's life in front of your concerns, your opinions. It's inconvenient to make somebody else first place 
rather than you being first place. It is inconvenient to be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to anger. It's inconvenient to be generous. It's inconvenient to love the way that Christ has loved us. Following Jesus has never been synonymous with convenience. And if you're looking for convenience, Jesus may not be your guy. If you're looking for easy, Jesus may not be your guy. Here's something else we're learning in this passage because he's inviting him to be inconvenienced, but he's also inviting him to change. And until you're willing to be inconvenienced, you're not ready to change. You'll never change your diet until you're willing to be inconvenienced. Let me tell you what's an inconvenience. When your kids wake up on Saturday and say, Dad, you know what you could do for us today? Do you know how you could show your love to your sons today? How's that? Go get us some donuts. Okay, and then to drive to the donut shop to get a dozen donuts, six chocolate glazed, six normal glazed. Can I get a witness? And then she says from across the counter, oh, we have warm donut holes. I'll take three dozen. And then you drive home. You know what the convenient thing to do is? To eat those suckers. They're there, they're warm, they're calling. You know what's inconvenience? You're trying to do right. You're trying to lower calories. You're trying to be healthy. Your blood glucose, you're trying to keep it down. It's a real inconvenience to say no to the donut. Following Jesus is inconvenient because it leads to change. Exercise, never convenient, but it's good change. Following Jesus may require us to say no to some things we wanna say yes to. Following Jesus may require us to say yes to some things we wanna say no to. Following Jesus may cause us to alter our plans. It may cause us to end up in unexpected places. It says, then he sat down, he got into the boat and he taught the people from the boat. So now Peter, you gotta see the scene, Peter's in the boat with Jesus. He's, 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 he's a captive audience. And I can see him like a lot of men come to church. He's sitting there. I'm gonna let you know I'm not happy about it. I'm here because my wife, I'm here because I have to be. I just want you to know. And so there he is. He's got his arms crossed and every once in a while he'll do one of those and counting the light bulbs and counting the trees. And it's like, I'm gonna let everybody know I'm not happy to be here because that's how us men are. I can't speak to you women. You tend to be nicer than we are. But you know, I just want you to know I'm not happy about being here. And I, I wanna make you think I'm not listening because if I make you think I'm not listening, you may not talk as long. But see, what you don't know about preachers, the more you act like you're not listening, the longer we're flipping gonna talk. So you best just straighten it up right now, bro. We're gonna be here till after lunch. And he's like, I'm not listening. And he's like, uh, but he is. He's listening to Jesus teach. And he's like, ah. It says, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. And now Peter even gets more annoyed because Peter is the fisherman. Jesus is a carpenter. And everybody knows you fish with a net at night because the water gets cooler and the fish come up to the surface. But in the daytime, when the temperature goes up, the fish go to deep water and you can't fish the deep water with a net. And so Jesus is just telling him something that is absolutely backward. And to Peter, what Jesus is asking him to do, it feels wrong. It sounds wrong. 
it goes against all of his previous fishing experience. It's something that Peter doesn't wanna do because he doesn't believe it'll work. He doesn't believe it'll make a difference. But Jesus is asking him, put your net out into this deep water. We don't fish that way. That's not how it works, Jesus. And so not only is Jesus asking Peter be, to be inconvenienced, now he's asking him to yield. Peter, I want you to yield your way to my way. Will you just do it? I, I'm gonna ask you to do something that you've done a thousand times, but I'm gonna ask you to do it differently this time. And I know it doesn't make sense, and I know you don't want to, and you're convinced that it won't matter, but will you just do it? And Simon Peter answered and said, Master, we've worked hard all night and we haven't caught anything, but because you say so, for whatever reason, I don't even know why, maybe something I just got through hearing, I, I don't know, but because you say so, I will let down the, because you say so. Jesus, I wanna go on record, not because I want to, not because it's convenient, not because I'm even convinced that it's gonna work, but because you say so. I'm tired, I'm frustrated, I wanna be home. I don't even wanna be here right now, but because you say so. Amen. If I were a betting man, I'm gonna bet everything that I've got, Jesus, that this is gonna be futile. This is not gonna result in anything, but because you say so. There's something about you. There's something about what I see in you and what I hear from you, but because you say so, I'm gonna do it. And when it comes to faith, that's how faith works. Faith is just not believing, faith is doing. And don't forget that doing what God wants you to do always comes before becoming who God wants you to be. Doing what God wants you to do always comes before becoming who God wants you to be. So Peter, I need you to do this. It's the doing that makes the difference. James, that brother Jesus was saying, just don't be a hearer of the word, but be a doer of it. Because that's where the change is at. So it says, when they had done so, Peter, Peter did it. They caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. Here's good news. Positive change awaits on the other side of obedience. There's something good on the other side of obedience. There's something worthwhile on the other side of obedience. But because you say so, Lord, I'm gonna do it, and he did it, and bam! Every time you love, every time you forgive, every time you put somebody first, every time you forgive, every time you do something for somebody that you would want somebody to do for you, a rough edge begins to be sanded. A crack begins to get filled in. A new lifestyle begins to take root. Because faith isn't a feeling. Faith isn't feeling something. Faith is doing something. Amen. And so it says, so they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. I mean, we're talking about a lot of fish. And when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, get away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all of his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so, James, so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee's, Simon part, Simon's partners. And it says, then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. Don't be afraid to follow me. 
Don't be afraid of not measuring up. Don't be afraid of falling on your face. Don't, don't be afraid of that. Don't be afraid of those moments in your life where you want to go left, but I'm calling you to go right. Don't be afraid of those moments that will inconvenience you. Don't, don't be afraid of those moments where I call you to end it or I call you to begin it. Don't, don't be afraid. And so, so they pulled up their boats on the shore and they left everything and followed him. Ha, now it makes sense. And if what had happened to Peter and Andrew, James and John, if that's what would have happened to you, you would have followed as well. And now the story makes more sense. When you get so convinced that Jesus is who he says he is, and you begin to organize your life around it. And you begin to do what he asks you to do, even when you don't want to, even when it doesn't make sense, even when you don't think that it will work. When you do that, there's positive change on the other side of that. And, and of course, it didn't get all clean and neat and tidy for all of those guys. They were still a mess. They were still broken, but following Jesus. Messy and broken, but now part of a process that was gonna put them back together. Peter, he was a mess after he stopped, after he started following Jesus. He'd have great moments and he'd have terrible moments. One day he's out there, Jesus walks on water and he says, Lord, tell me to come out there to you. And all the disciples were like, oh my gosh, look how courageous, look how brave. Oh my God, I wish I could be more like Peter. Oh, I want to be like Peter. And Peter gets there and he starts walking on the water. And then all of a sudden the circumstances get to him and he takes his eyes off Jesus. And then in front of all of his friends and in front of Jesus, he sinks. And all of his friends, I don't want to be like Peter. I don't want to be like Peter. I don't want to be like Peter. One day Jesus asked said, who do people say that I am? And Peter said, I'll tell you who you are. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. And it was a home run. On another day, Jesus said, I'm going to Jerusalem and the chief elders and the scribes, they're gonna put me to death. And Peter says, it'll never happen. I won't allow it. And Jesus looks at him and says, get behind me, Satan. Can we just agree that when Jesus calls you Satan, it is not a good day. And then when all the chips needed to be cast, when it mattered most, Jesus had been arrested. And what did, Jesus, what did Peter do? Publicly denied Jesus three times. And it was public. It was a failure of epic proportion. But after the resurrection, Jesus came looking for Peter and restored him and put him in charge. He preaches on the day of Pentecost and it's like Peter's back on the team. He's winning again. All right, now it's getting clean. And then you read the book of Acts and find out that 10 years after Pentecost, Peter's still a bit of a racist. He doesn't even walk into the home of a Gentile because they're unclean and unholy. He still craves public opinion and popularity so much so that him and Paul get into an argument and Paul puts his finger in Peter's face and says, you are becoming no friend to the gospel. Peter? He's following Jesus. Yeah, but the soundtrack, it's still there. It's messy. The process is messy. And sometimes it will take a lifetime to change a life. 
Peter, at the end of his life, 30 some years after the resurrection, he's in Rome, he's a prisoner of Nero. They take him out from his dungeon prison cell somewhere outside the city and they're gonna crucify him for his faith because he won't recant. Of course, church tradition tells us that he said, don't crucify me like Jesus, I'm not worthy. So they crucified him upside down. And we see a picture of a man who's been in a messy process, but God has put some things back together. God has mended some of that brokenness. He's not perfect, but God's been developing him. And Peter, before he dies, he writes and says, let the gift of undeserved grace and the understanding that comes from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, help you keep on growing. Don't give up on you, Peter would say. If I've learned anything, don't give up on yourself because God doesn't give up on you. Amen. God didn't give up on me. So keep adjusting, keep changing, keep organizing, keep aligning. Don't give up on you. And by the way, don't give up on the other people. God hasn't given up on them. Don't you give up on them. Don't you write them off. Faith just isn't one big step. It's one step followed by another step, followed by another step, followed by another step until we get to where God is trying to take us. And somewhere along the way, we'll take three steps forward and it's gonna be pretty and it's gonna be bold, but somewhere along the way, you'll take four back. Sometimes you'll get off balance and you'll take three steps to the right or two steps to the left or sometimes you'll just get stuck, but don't give up on you and don't give up on anybody else because God hasn't given up on you. This is a process and it may take a lifetime to change your life or to change her life or to change his life. So let's be patient with each other in the process. Let's be patient with ourselves in the process. Let's stop condemning ourselves and guilting ourselves and shaming ourselves. Let's just keep putting one step in front of the other the best we can and follow him, knowing that we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of God's son. To know that it does not yet appear what we shall be, but one day when he shall appear, we shall be made like him. And one day the graves are gonna burst open and those who have died in Christ, they're gonna be raised and resurrected with glorified, perfect bodies to sin no more, to disappoint no one any longer, to not be captive or mastered by anyone or anything ever again. And those who are alive at that moment will be changed into the same bodies. Your best days are yet ahead. The people who frustrate you most, their best days are still ahead. So let's cut each other some slack, shall we? Let's get off our high horses, shall we? Let's quit condemning online people who don't agree with us, shall we? People who have different interpretations, who do it different, who sing it different, who present it different. Let's give each other a little bit of patience Amen. because we're all in process. A messy one at that. Heavenly Father, it's not easy, it's not convenient, but you invite us to follow you. 
And sometimes it's hard and it's heartbreaking and it's frustrating. And sometimes we fall down and we get back up and sometimes we get stuck and sometimes we move forward and sometimes we move back, but you're so patient with us because you know that we can trust the process because we can trust you. So God, for the people that are just so hard on themselves, that they whisper to themselves that they're a loser, that they've lost, that they failed, that they're no good. God, would you just whisper that you're never giving up on them, that we can trust the process. When we wanna condemn each other and get angry and frustrated with each other, would you just remind us to be patient with the process? You are resurrecting us. You're changing us. You're bringing beauty out of that ash and wholeness out of that brokenness and a masterpiece out of that mess. And we receive it today. We receive it with gratitude that that's what's true. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen.